Welcome back, readers and romance seekers, to Hopelessly Romantic Behind the Page. Spring has, well, okay, it hasn't quite sprung yet, but I've been able to go outside these last few days, so that's really nice. Uh, except, you know, that one day last week when the sky essentially tried to crash down to Earth. Ooh, yeah, that was a big old rainstorm that turned into a snowstorm and knocked out our power a few times. It was fun. Okay, not really, but you get my point. But, on the brighter side, stormy weather is excellent reading weather. Darn shame about that book, though. Alright, alright, alright. Uh, Captive Prison... Captive Prince wasn't the complete worst. I, I just had a lot of thoughts about it, you know? For starters, had it not been for the podcast, I would have div- I would have given it a different score. And I did on my Goodreads page. I didn't want to really give a two-star rating on Goodreads because it was too well-written for me, to, to be honest. The only thing that really kept it from getting a higher score is, you know, that that whole slavery thing. Yeah. So I did talk about making some comparisons to the Sleeping Beauty series by Anne Rice. Would I rate Sleeping Beauty as low as I scored Captive Prince? I don't know. For the podcast, it's it's a different purview, I guess. What really bothers me about it is I'm not sure how I would score Sleeping Beauty. There, There is a lot wrong with Sleeping Beauty. The, the first book is The Claiming of Sleeping Beauty. There, there's no question about it. Um, she is 15 and willingly handed off to a neighboring kingdom as part of a treaty agreement to be trained as a pleasure slave. Her parents both lived the same experience. Like they, They're like, oh, this will be very good for you. They're totally chill with her going off to do this because that makes it okay, right? Um, it, it doesn't help that the moment Beauty enters into the story, she has no agency whatsoever with what happens to her. Um, so if you, if you've read some of the original fairy tales, you might be familiar with this. Um, at, at, so at the end of the Sleeping Beauty fairy tale, this is where claiming of Sleeping Beauty begins. And depending on the version you're reading, it might not look too dissimilar of this. Um, so after a hundred years, an intrepid prince dares to enter into the deep bramble that is surrounding the castle, and he finally finds the cursed and sleeping princess. He doesn't kiss her, as we might expect. No, 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 no. Uh, instead, he cuts away her dress, and well, I'm, I'm gonna call it. He rapes her. I mean, she's asleep. She's a minor. She can't consent to any of this by any stretch of the imagination, but. It does the trick, and she wakes up to this strange man all over her. After which, the castle and all its inhabitants come back to life. It's quite amusing because there was a lady servant in her chambers when the curse fell over, and so this woman basically just comes to, like, she she comes back to consciousness, and there is a strange man raping the princess she's supposed to be taking care of, and she's got no idea what's going Yeah. Yeah, but, but he, this prince essentially, he, he takes control over the whole situation. He demands a dinner, which he eats with the king and queen while keeping their naked 15 year old daughter in his lap. But, but the way that the Sleeping Beauty books are written, it, it implies this sort of dreamlike world, much like how in dreams we feel as though we have no power and we might be pulled any which way without being able to do anything about it or, compelled to complete some action that both does and doesn't make sense. 
And in all fairness to these books, Beauty is pretty chill with her situation, if not happy to experience the pleasure that she's been given over the course of the series. And on top of that, I read Sleeping Beauty for the first time, like, oh my god, nearly 10 years ago. And I was completely captivated, if not fascinated. There were parts that enraptured me, parts that horrified me. And overall, the emotions that I experience, um, they, they place a pretty heavy pair of nostalgia glasses over my eyes. So I don't think I could judge those books fairly. It really depends, on, I guess, the person who's reading them. Now, on the other side of the coin, we've got something like Captive Prince. Unlike how Beauty doesn't mind her situation all that much, if she has objections to anything at all, Damon is very much not a willing participant. This is true slavery. Beauty's captivity was only for a set amount of time, after which she would be sent back home, theoretically better for her experience. Damon, he's here for the long haul. His only possible reprieve would be escape, and he doesn't want anything to do with this situation. And it's written in a way that's more grounded than the Beauty series. It's concrete, and our main character absolutely does not want to be there. He makes this very clear to us, the readers. A friend of mine has described Sleeping Beauty um, by saying that there's too much implied consent, and I'd agree, like as, like as a scenario kind of thing. While Beauty might not mind her captivity, she has, again, no say in what happens to her, and has to go along with whatever her masters demand. But, here's a different uh, aspect, when she gets kidnapped by yet another rival kingdom, the first kingdom that she was enslaved by makes for her rescue, and she's released back home since the agreement that they had with her parents' kingdom was broken and therefore the contract is void. And, you know, as an aside, the kidnapping plot point, um, that happens in the third book, and uh, that's where a majority of my horror came in. There is some, uh, shall we say, disturbing Orientalism happening there. Captive Prince makes me uncomfortable in different ways, mostly because, again, like Beauty, he has no voice, but he's got no options except to hope for escape. And like I mentioned in the review, there's not a lot of romance happening. Damon is so against everything happening to him that there's no there's no space, no ability for him to fall in love with his intended prince. There's a couple of scenes where they have to touch each other, but like even then that's just like they they hate each other. So I can't really review it as a romance. The only reason it's on my shelf of shame, as far as the podcast goes, it's, that's simply because it's too well written. Last year, our Halloween episode had us read Beauty and the Werewolf, and that was a similar problem, even though there was more romance than Captive Prince. It was, frankly, a fantasy, not really a romance until the end of the story. Um, Pretty Little Lion, that had more romance still, but it was all over the place and may not have fit the scope of pure romance as a genre. I think I'm just going to go ahead and walk away now. I feel like I've been beating like, you know, the metaphorical dead horse around the block. I I feel like I can say everything, but also I don't want to say anything else about it. And I, I don't really want to keep repeating myself. Um, I'll, I will say that I might go back to read the rest of the Captive Prince series, but it probably won't be for the main podcast episodes. And the longer my TBR list gets, it's, hmm, it, maybe. <laughs> uh, speaking of which, let's see what Heather is reading this week. 
I'm going to start by saying that I have been seeing a court of thorns and roses everywhere. And I knew that it would be fairy implied. Um, and I've been, I've been seeing like more of an, in, I've been, I've been having more of an interest, I should say, in fairy courts. So I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll give this a look. So I finally picked it up and other, I, I really didn't know anything else about it except that it was fantasy and that it was popular. And I kind of wish I knew more than that going in. <laughs> um, so it's not terrible. I won't say that, but okay. Um, it's Beauty and the Beast, or perhaps more accurately, it's Eros and Psyche from Greek mythology, but that itself is a direct inspiration for Beauty and the Beast. Um, I, I It, it kind of hit me after like somewhere in the first chapter where I found out more about the heroine's back. I'm like, oh yeah, here we go. Beauty and the Beast. Got it. Fine. Okay, let's go. <laughs> um, yeah, that's it. That's the whole book. Uh, I, you know that I love a good fairy tale retelling, but personally, I don't feel like this added anything to the story itself. Um, we've got that YA trope of the slightly feral heroine hunting for food for him, her impoverished family with a bow and arrow. Um, instead of like, you know, a massive overarching government, she's mad at fairies. Uh, they haven't been, I guess, meddling with humans that much but like you know they're they're still there um she's angry with the fairies and for the long war that nearly decimated humanity and she's going to do anything and everything under the sun to help support a family that does not fully appreciate her it it was almost frustrating to read because the the main character makes this excuse her name's Farah. yeah a story about fairies and the main character's named Farah, but she hates fairies any sorry anyway um, the whole reason she sticks around her for lousy family is because her mother on her deathbed said, you have to take care of the family. And in this universe, saying a vow, making promises is the single greatest thing you could do. They don't have gods anymore. They just have promises. So she, she can't abandon her family despite how they treat her. Um, and, and like I said, there wasn't any oppression exactly. Um, but the fairies were once overlords of the human realm and they were happy to oppress them. Uh, not unlike our deal with the elf king. Um, and between elf king and thorns and roses, I think I prefer the former. I thought that elf king had a more creative look at the myth, even if it also followed the standard tropes. With the court of thorns and roses, I found myself going along for a ride that I wasn't particularly wanting at the moment. Um, had I found it in my college days, I might be more forgiving or heck, I might even become a, I might've even become a huge fan, but by this point I've seen it all before. And even more frustratingly, this book is written with a YA tone, but it added in some unexpected spice that I wasn't prepared for at all. Uh, to be perfectly honest, this was technically a stronger romance than the book that I actually read for the podcast episode. And also, as for that YA feeling, I'm I'm doing like a couple of double checking facts on uh, on Court of Thorns and Roses. Uh, I'm learning now that there's a new age grouping. I am always behind the times with news like this. I I live under a rock. Hi, my name's Heather, and I'm I don't know about news, especially where books are concerned. I just go in blind as I possibly can. Anyway, um, new adult is the new term these days. It's 
too young for adult fiction, I guess, but too spicy for YA. That's the impression that I'm getting. And I think that kind of makes sense. It's probably where I would put a uh, deal with the Elf King. Yeah. Um, That was anyway. uh, But as you know, when I'm reading non-podcast books, I prefer audiobooks. Yes, complete subject change. I I prefer audiobooks for their accessibility, um, both because of my available time. uh, I am a full-time mom on top of everything else and my ADHD needs. And the audiobook for A Court of Thorns and Roses was probably the best thing about the book itself. Had it not been for the audiobook, A Court of Thorns and Roses might have actually become a did-not-finish on my bookshelf. Most of the time, audiobooks are are either just one or two narrators. Sometimes there's more if there's multiple perspectives, like in Black Sun, I think there were four narrators. Um, There was an outlier that I know of called Full Cast Audio. Uh, They... They uh, focused on some of my favorite um, books when I was growing up. Uh, but the version of Cord and Thorns and Roses that I downloaded was a full cast of performers. And on top of that, it had music and sound effects. It's done by a company called Graphic Audio. And they describe themselves as a movie in your mind. And I'm, if I'm perfectly honest, it was a pretty cool experience. I mean, it did get a little awkward during, um, during not just the kisses, but the love scenes as well. Ooh. Um, it, it, it's, it's a hell of an immersive experience when I can hear snow crunching and buckles jingling as they're riding horses through a winter wood. Um, but I, I, I'm really not sure how I feel about certain activities being described while hearing moans and such in the background. Uh, it, it nearly descended to straight porn with those sound effects, and it was a especially jarring sensation when I was reading something that had that YA affect. I guess I'll have to get used to it with the new new adult uh, designation. I will say, if you are a fan of A Court of Thorns and Roses, I will definitely recommend that you check out the graphic audio rendition of the audiobook. It, I, I, I genuinely enjoyed it, for sure. But all that aside, what really grinds my gears with A Court of Thorns and Roses is that it is all completely undone with the next books. Okay, slight spoilers. I don't, I, I spoiled myself. I didn't care. Um, you might, though. And I'm really not terribly interested in reading the other novels, mostly because of this romance that we established in the first book. It, it Like, that romance, it's literally the thing that saves the day. And it's not real, apparently. So Farah, our main character, she has to go through abject and total misery, hell, anguish, to be able to make it out on the other side. Is and this really came through pretty well in the audiobook, especially uh, that that conviction, and it's the big reason that she's able to do what needs to be done is the strength of that bond between herself and our beast analog, Tamlin. He is a high fae of the Spring Court. I guess he's the guy in charge um, of the Spring Court. There's like several. I don't remember all of them at the time. Um, and she has, she, she literally has to kill people in order to be able to succeed. And she hates herself for it. She, she, it, it's probably going to be like something that's going to carry her trauma throughout the rest of the books And the only reason she was able to do it was because not just her love of Tamlin, but literally the entire fate of all of the fairy world was hinging on her ability to kill people. And 
Tamlin being there was the best motivation she had to be able to do it because she understood what was important because of her love with Tamlin. It sucked. It was very much a morally great choice that she had to make. And I don't, I don't know if I would say that I faulted her for making the choice. I totally get it. I totally understand. And I think a lot of the characters understand what she had to do. The person, I, I'm getting into the weeds here. I'm sorry. <laughs> but this is one of the reasons why when I find out in the future books, it turns out that Tamlin is not just metaphorically a beast for like the Beauty and the Beast story. It turns out that he's actually a terrible and abusive son of a bitch. And Feyre needs to rely on a sort of almost antagonist from the first novel to be able to survive. I just, it just, it just bothers me a lot that Feyre's passion, her love and trust that she had for Tamlin, it means nothing. It's just, thrown away to the wind for the sake of the next book that it might be nearly and almost as bad as it was all a dream because that's that's another favorite of mine okay yeah but i th I think i'm gonna leave it here for the day things have been crazy on my end and i have books to read and write so i will see you all next week when we read the bell of belgrave square by mimi matthews <laughs> Thank you for joining me, readers and romance seekers, and I hope to see you once again for Hopelessly Romantic. If you like the show, please visit us at hopelesslyromanticpodcast.com. If you have questions or want to recommend a read, please email us at contact at hopelesslyromanticpodcast.com. And don't forget to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash hopelesslyromantic. The show is written and produced by me, Heather Songster. Our technical advisor is Kwang Hin Cho. Hopelessly Romantic is an H with K production, and it doesn't matter what you read, only that it's what you love. <laughs> <laughs>